You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. They say that the safest place for a Jew to have been in Europe during the uh, Holocaust was a little village in the south of France called Le Chambon-sur-Lyon. And it was this particular village to which an American, actually the cousin of uh, one of those Jews who felt safety in that place, came back some 50 years later. And this woman met one of the villagers who had rescued so many Jews. There were 5,000 people in the village, and this village harbored, hid, and saved 5,000 Jews. And and this American who came to meet this woman... uh, as soon as she saw her burst into tears and then gave her a hug. And she said to her companion, after hugging this woman from Le Chambon, she was struck by how it felt like she was hugging a tree. Such solidity in this woman's life. And it raises the question, how does a person have such solidity? How can a person participate in such heroism? They put their lives at risk. uh, uh, As you know, France was occupied. The Vichy government was in place. And in Le Chambon, sur Lyon, there were, at least in the last year of the German occupation, SS soldiers walking the streets. And yet in this little village, 5,000 rescued. What did it take? What was it about these people? We can't simply say that they were Christians and they were Christians. They were Huguenots, actually, the descendants of John Calvin's ministry in France. They were in the Reformed tradition, Presbyterians. And yet, as we know, the Holocaust, one of the darkest days of Christendom, to say you're a Christian does not necessarily put you on the right side. It's altogether too true that oftentimes our culture affects our faith more than our Savior But there was something about this particular community that made heroic people. The Duke Divinity School and Duke Law School professor Stanley Hauerwas recently was quoted in the Reuters News Service. The church has lost its ability to be a disciplined community because we're now religiously in a buyer's market. Christianity has to bill itself as very good for your self-realization. And that's killing us because we are not very good for your self-realization. We're good for your salvation, which is not the same thing. I don't know how it happened. They say somehow the church began in Jerusalem as a community, moved to Athens and became a philosophy, moved to Rome and became an organization, moved to America and became a business. A few years ago, church I was serving at the time, I received a phone call and it was a member of the congregation who called with some helpful advice, a little bit of feedback, something that would improve uh, uh, our nursery. And I thanked him, uh, but he said something just before we hung up the phone that has stuck with me ever since. He he said, George, I understand the challenges. I work in the service industry also. I had to think for a second because the first time that it occurred to me that I worked in the service industry. (laughs) I thought I was a member of a community. 
Why would it be that we would come to the church and think what what we're doing here is procuring religious goods and services? That we would want to relate to the church as we relate in the marketplace. That transaction between a buyer, a consumer, and a good to be purchased. There's something different about the community that engenders such solidity, as our friend said. Well, if you're visiting with us, I want to review. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Not Good to Be Alone. And we began in the Garden of Eden where we saw that there's a kind of a fellowship that human beings are created for. And then we came to the foot of Mount Sinai and we received the Lord's instruction where he said, I make of you a priestly people. And then we came into the garden where we heard Jesus praying to the Father. And in that prayer, we discovered that we are meant in all of our relationships to experience the profound mystery of the Trinity. And then last week, in a forgiven debt, we were reminded of the Lord's table and the cup, which Jesus says is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. But all of these things are artifacts from a distant past to us who live in the 21st century. I mean, they're great Bible stories and they're meaningful to us, but none of us ever participated in those events. We were not there. So they're not things that we were able to immediately experience. And yet today we come to a discussion of that where we do engage in those experiences, and that is in the church. And we begin our discussion of the church by beginning where the New Testament church is founded, and that's in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. You remember the story, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the feast of Pentecost. Some 10 days earlier, the Lord Jesus has ascended to the heaven and he's encouraged his disciples to gather together and to stay in Jerusalem. And there are 120 of them. And all of a sudden from heaven, the spirit of God comes on them and brings them to life as a new people like they had never known, like the planet has never known. Apostle Peter, who usually only opened his mouth to change feet, gives the sermon of his life. And he explains the good news of Jesus Christ. It's for all people. And those who hear it are shocked and stunned and delighted. And the text tells us on that day there were 3,000 who believed. 3,000 became the church. And I want to read with you the text that follows. It tells us what that Spirit of God did with these people in the days that followed. And and as we read it, I want to invite you to listen for one particular phrase. And that phrase in our translation is, at home. Uh, Would you open up your Bible to Acts chapter 2 in the Pew Bible? It's on page 886. And if you're able, let's stand together and read God's Word. Acts chapter 2. We'll start in verse 42 and we'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 47. And after we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you may say thanks be to God. Let's listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. A day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home 
and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Father in heaven, we ask that by the grace of the Son, Jesus Christ, you would again pour out your spirit on us, your people. May the living word speak life to us. Speak, Lord, for your people listen in Jesus name. Amen. So this phrase. At home, we'd like to talk to you about that in the next few minutes. First, what does it mean? Second, why is it important? And then finally, what results when the followers of Jesus Christ take that phrase at home seriously? Let's begin with what it means. Of course, we find it here in verse 46. You noticed it. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, these new believers broke bread at home. And notice the footnote there, uh, Q, takes you down to the lower right-hand corner of the page where we see uh, from house to house. The phrase in Greek is a prepositional phrase with two words, kata, that's the preposition, and oikon, that means house. They were gathering kata oikon. The the preposition is functioning distributively there. It, It really means house by house. We see an example of that right at the beginning of the verse where Luke tells us day by day they spent much time together. That's the same construction. Kata he meri, according to the day or day by day. So house by house, these believers are gathering. Uh, This happens immediately upon Pentecost, but it also persists through the life of the church. We'll find this phrase kata oikon, house by house, uh, throughout the epistles, Romans, Colossians, Philemon. And then, for example, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we'll read this greeting. The churches of Asia send greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house. That's the church house by house. It's not a surprise that the early believers gathered in this way for um, this rhythm of meeting in the temple in a large group that expresses their unity and then retreating and meeting in a more more, uh, uh, smaller setting that expresses their intimacy was the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. For he would speak to them in the temple courtyards, the portico of Solomon, a large space. He would speak to them on the hillsides of Galilee, the plains and along the sea. But he would also, and most importantly, retreat. He would gather into small circles of disciples where they really got to know him much more intimately and he them. He asked them questions. He engaged them around the gospel in the context of the actual facts of their lives. And so we're not surprised to see that the followers of Jesus continue to expect that they will meet him in this same pattern. So they do. They're meeting day by day in the temple courtyards, the outer courtyards, and then they're meeting day by day, house by house. We get a wonderful image of this later on in uh, chapter 20 of Acts. I want to just read to you about the Apostle Paul's uh, experience of one of these house churches in chapter 20. But before I read it to you, think about Paul and his experience. I mean, as as he's in this house meeting, his mind must go back. But when he was uh, Saul, the rabbi, the great educated leader of his day, he hated Christians. 
And he knew where he would find them. After the stoning of Stephen in chapter 8, we see that Saul, breathing death threats against his church, wanting to stamp it out, will know where he'll find them. He goes house by house, we read, pulling men and women out, dragging them off and committing them to prison. It's in just such a house that he, after seeing the risen Christ, is restored. He has a positive encounter with the church. Ananias comes and explains to him the good news calls him to ministry in this, in this community. And now here towards the end of his ministry, in Acts chapter 20, Luke tells us that Paul is destined for Jerusalem, uh, likely to be arrested. This will be the end of his ministry and his life. And he stops off at Troas, which is where you would do if you didn't have a lot of time. Troas is the port city associated with Ephesus. And he visits one of these homes. Listen, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Luke speaking on the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with these believers since he intended to leave the next day. He continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus. Now, Luke calls him a man in this translation. Probably a lad is a better rendering. He was between eight and 14 years old. A boy, really, an early adolescent. Eutychus was sitting in the window, but he began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. Paul was never much of a youth minister. (laughs) Overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and bending over him, took him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. Then Paul went upstairs and after he had broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn. And then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. I love the understatement of that. How close to your picture of church is that experience that Luke describes? You go, yeah, George, that's pretty similar. Uh, Preacher goes on and on, falling asleep, risk of death. Uh, No, I'm trying to get past that part to this window into a third floor home, a living space where believers are gathered around a meal. They're breaking bread and they're asking questions about God and their life. They're studying the scriptures. They're bringing their hurts and they're experiencing God's healing. The life of the church is in its community. So that's what it means. House by house. That's what these early disciples were doing. Uh, but, but now, why is it important? Is this just an accident of history or is there some significance here for you and for me? And, and, and to describe the importance, I want to make you aware of a contrast here. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, I just read to you, Paul, when he's um, this is later in the same chapter, saying goodbye now, finally, to the church in Ephesus, describes his ministry among them. He says, I did not shrink from doing anything helpful. Proclaiming the message to you and teaching you, now listen to this, publicly and from house to house. He's remembering how he's related to them. He says, I I related to you publicly, but but also in the intimacy of of these home meetings. You remember that. And the reason I raise this is, you see, there's a contrast. There are two possibilities here. We, We read elsewhere in Acts that Paul spent two years at Ephesus. And one of the things he did was he... uh, he lectured in a great lecture hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. 
And the word for lecture hall there is skole, from which we get the English word school. And so it's not the case that the church in Ephesus had no alternative to the house meeting. See, I think that's oftentimes what I think. Well, they have to meet in houses because they don't have a big building like we have, right? No, they had the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And Paul was there daily lecturing. And yet that was not sufficient for the church in Ephesus to experience and explore all that Jesus Christ wanted for them. So they met house by house. You can meet a kata skole according to lecture halls, lecture hall by lecture hall, or you can meet house by house. And the church, whenever it seemed to have the option of doing either, did both. But if it just had the choice of doing one, it chose to meet house by house. Jerusalem, they seem to have this option too. Luke tells us they're, they're gathered in the temple courtyard, but they're breaking bread house by house. Oftentimes when we read this passage, our eyes are caught by verse 42 and their devotion. 42 says that these disciples are devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. These four great core disciplines of the church, they were devoted to them. But unfortunately, our translation obscures the fact that there were actually two devotions in this young community. Because this word devoted occurs at verse 42, and then it reappears at verse 46. In fact, the whole passage hangs, really, on these two expressions of devotion. In, in verse 46, in our translation, it's rendered spent much time. Day by day, uh, they were devoted together in the temple and house by house. The importance of that is that I think many of us come to the lecture hall to learn about these core disciplines because we want to be devoted to them. But, but, but my contention is we cannot be devoted to the core disciplines without also being devoted to the core people in which we would live those disciplines out. In the lecture hall, I can learn about the disciplines or on iPod for that matter. And I can try to begin to embody them in my life. But as an isolated individual, my experience of those disciplines is necessarily impoverished. I will need to attach myself to a core group of people where I can live them out. Just think of these four things briefly. The first one is the apostles teaching. What teaching in the hall is informational. It's content that's communicated kind of monodirectionally. There's not a lot of interaction. But in the house, the apostles teaching is transformational. Because it engages me in the process of my own growth and transformation in Jesus Christ. It's connected with the circumstances of that very day. And it's spoken to me on the lips of somebody who knows me. Who's growing to know the real me and maybe sees it before even I do. Or, or, or fellowship. The word here in Greek is koinonia. A wonderful word for the early church. In the hall, fellowship or koinonia is abstract. We can pass the peace and we can look around the room and say, yeah, we belong to a larger uh, community. But it's kind of ethereal in our minds. It, it, in the house, this fellowship becomes very concrete. And I have an opportunity to discover what it really means to be committed to other people. There's a lot of anxiety when we Americans read this text about how, gosh, they're sharing all things in common. Is this some kind of proto-communism? You know, Are we supposed to disclaim all personal private property. Well, I don't actually think that's what's happening, even though many Christians have fruitfully adopted that lifestyle and communal living. But really, what seems to be happening is they're holding all of their things for the benefit of the community. 
It's not clear that they're liquidating all their assets. After all, they still own homes. They're meeting in homes. No, but they hold their assets loosely. So that when they come across somebody in their community who has a need, they have the opportunity to sell something and meet that need. How do I meet people's needs? How do I even know people's needs in the lecture hall? How do people know my needs? It's only as we gather in an intimate uh, core group of people that we know and are known enough to really be able to engage compassionately with one another and experience real fellowship or koinonia. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. Again, we do that in the lecture hall. Uh, but it's very symbolic. It, it symbolizes our union with Christ and our union with one another. And we kind of wave at it from a distance. But it's in the house where this meal really becomes interactive. Think about uh, your own family table. It's not too different from mine. There are oftentimes lively disagreements at that table at mealtime. And the early church was no different. What came to be called love feasts were marked by arguments and disputes and negotiation. You see that? Well, whose meat should we eat? Should we eat meat? Are you stumbling over this? And arguments at table. Eat at home. Eat together. Are you hungry? Do you have enough? See, what's happening is the culture of the of the church is being shaped around these tables. And then finally, prayers. Well, in the hall, uh, prayers tend to be generic. Uh, they tend to be um, uh, abstract. And frankly, sometimes they're about ourselves more than they are about the people around us. Why? Because we just don't know them as well as we'd like to know them. But in the house, they're personal. Because, see, I know your hopes and dreams. I've watched your expectations and I can pray knowledgeably. I had somebody this week who told me that uh, his daughter-in-law had a crisis and his first instinct was to fire off an email to a small group and invite them to pray. See, because they've been praying for this family all along and they know exactly what to say. Well, these four core disciplines can only be demonstrated, can only be lived, can only be experienced really fully in the context of of house by house community. We think also about a lot of other things in the scripture. Do you know there are 43 one another passages? If you just do a concordant search on the word one another, 43 times. And things like uh, love one another, encourage one another, submit to one another, build one another up, be kind to one another, accept one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, serve one another, have concern for one another, confess your sins to one another, forgive one another. Carry one another's burdens on and on and on 43 times. How can you obey any of them when you're not in close, personal, committed, interactive relationships? Or or think about the fruit of the spirit. Uh, By my count, there are some nine experiences connected to the fruit of the spirit. I'm sure there are even more. But of those nine, you know, at least seven of them require relationships. Love. How are you going to do that by yourself? Joy, peace. Yeah, a lot of peace when I'm alone, but it takes another person to really know peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. See, these are the experiences that the spirit pours into our lives when we find ourselves in this kind of knowing relationship. When most of us think of the church, what comes to mind is the lecture hall. Isn't that interesting? I'm reminded of... uh, uh, Albert Einstein, you know, he, 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 he uh, 
this story, probably apocryphal, of his chauffeur driving him around, you know, lecture after lecture. And the chauffeur has heard this lecture so many times. One day he says to Einstein, you know, Dr. Einstein, I've heard this lecture over and over again. It's a brilliant lecture, but by now I could give it. And, and Dr. Einstein says, okay, you're on. They arrive at the next location, change the chauffeur's hat around, and Einstein stands at the back of the room, and there's the chauffeur waxing eloquently, you know, in this lecture going on and on. And, and it works fine. Until at the end, somebody raises the hand in the audience, and one of these academics asks a question. And the chauffeur chokes, and he says to himself, he says, that question is such a simple question, even my chauffeur could answer it. He points to Dr. Einstein in the back of the room. But you know, lectures can be so canned and formulaic, and they don't really engage us personally. And that's why God calls us not only into the great lecture halls of the day, but also into the homes of our community and neighborhoods. It's a place to learn the disciplines so this community is doubly devoted. It's devoted to these four disciplines, but it's also devoted to these core people that God has given them. Finally, well, what happens? What, what happens when we take this phrase, at home, or house by house, seriously in the life of the church? Well, we get a wonderful description. It's brief, but it's, it's worth meditating on. At the end of verse 47, Luke says, And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I see two things in there. First of all, it's the Lord who's doing it. Notwithstanding all the devotion and all the practices of the church, we find out the veil of mystery is peeled back and Luke says it's the Lord who's at work in this community. Should we be surprised? This is just the way the Lord worked when he walked among us. Should we be surprised if we've read the beginning of Acts, uh, the first verse of it, Luke says, the NIV captures it better. Uh, um, I'm going to tell you, Theophilus, uh, in in my former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, it's the same author that writes Luke and Acts. And he begins Acts by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is, in this book, Theophilus, I'm going to write about all the things that Jesus continues to do and teach. And he's doing it through the community. And so we're not surprised. It's, it's Jesus. The second thing is that um, it's not self-actualization that is the outcome of this thing. Uh, not at all. I mean, my understanding of self-actualization is it's about individual fulfillment, right? There's the hierarchy of need and you move up as your need, needs are gradually satisfied. No, it's not about the individual at all. The marks of transformation here are the marks of salvation, and the marks of the community, the people of God, the marks that have been seen even back to the day of, uh, of Mount Sinai when there was awe and wonders. And here again, this is a community that's marked by the same awe and wonder and justice and love and most of all, gladness. There's a lot of pessimism about the church today. You know, it's kind of dead institution. And, and Eugene Peterson, he's got a great image that he draws actually from the work of Frederick von Hugel. And he says, yeah, the church institutions, they're dead. But they're dead like the bark on a tree is dead. You see, the bark on the tree, it's not living, but it's protecting what's living. You take the bark off and that precious gift will be gone. You see, but the life of the church 
is in its community. It's in its relationships. Let's not get hung up on programs like small groups, many rooms or houses. The life of the community is in the relationships that Jesus Christ calls us to and in which he shows up. That's what makes us solid people. It's interesting, as historians have gone back to Le Chambon sur Lyon and interviewed people, they're all surprised at the fuss. What we did was nothing unusual at all. Except, I would say, they had two devotions. For if you look at the door of their church, you'll see written, love one another. And if you were to have picked up a copy of the newspaper in 1943 in that little village, you would read the top where it is written, 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It was in 1943 that the SS would come finally knocking on the door at the pastor's home, Andre Trocme. And we would see in that moment the brilliance of what God had done in that community. For Pastor Trocme had encouraged his congregation to meet house by house. They had organized themselves in small group Bible studies throughout the village. They'd shared fellowship together. And as these soldiers came and knocked on the door, it was evening and they caught Mrs. Trocme with the evening meal, dinner. She, of course, was greatly disappointed that they'd been discovered and her husband would be taken to prison. But she asked the officers, before you go, would you not enjoy a meal with us? And the soldiers sat down together with this woman and her husband, the pastor, and broke bread. And one of the officers broke down into tears and said, this will never be forgotten. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, nowhere will the community that you forge ever be forgotten. Because it's a thing of great beauty. Because it's a thing of eternity. Because it's a thing of joyful gladness. And so we thank you for the gift of community that we don't have to conjure it, that we just welcome it. It's your ministry among us. We open our hearts, our hands to this experience and we ask that you help us receive it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.